Father, through this ancient text, come hard after our souls. We know this is your word. It isn't just meant so that we can criticize a group of people that lived 3,000 years ago and feel smugly self-righteous in comparison to them. We know that this word was written for us and for our benefit. As we read your word today, let it read us. May the speaker's voice and the hearer's ear not distort your word. Help it to be clear and concise, powerful and prevailing. Help it to wound us and mend us, to cut us and clean us. Apply the gospel balm today. Holy Spirit, we believe in you. We know that you can make things stick. We know that if we are fed from the scriptures, it's because you are doing it. Taking the divine spoon and giving us what we need to be complete in Christ. Jesus, my desire is to lift you up. That you would be seen as irresistible. That the beauty of Christ would radiate in this auditorium. Father, we are not just willing to live for you, but we are willing to die for you. No price is too great when we have received grace. Blessed Trinity, three in one and one in three, this is our corporate plea. Amen. I want you to open a 3,000-year-old text, 2 Samuel 4. I'm not asking you to open a book that was written last week or last year. This is old, older than your grandmother old, older than America old. This text seems far away from us, far away chronologically, 3,000 years. <laughs> These people, they don't know what toothpaste is. They have no idea about electricity. They have no concept of a cell phone. They've never listened to a Justin Bieber song. Never had to endure that torture. This text is far away chronologically and far away culturally. There are two men who are dismembered in this text. Their hands and feet are cut off. There are brothers who behead a man in this text. How barbaric. This text seems far away from us. It is not. Someone cut off Blackbeard's head and put it on a pole in Virginia. Things like that were happening not too long ago. Just a few centuries. Beheading still happens today. You heard of ISIS? Dismembering a body? This happens weekly in America. It's always on the news. Cutting and dismembering of bodies is actually not that far from us. Plus, there's a tragedy in the text, a sad one about a child. It will make you say, 
Oh, no. And that's not far removed from us. Tragedy still happened to children. You still have to process accidental disasters. This text isn't far separated from us as you at first may think. This text also seems far away from Christ. How are you going to preach Christ from 2 Samuel 4 when he's not in it? Well, we could read him into the text, put him where he is not, behind every rock and under every shrub. You've seen guys do this. Every time they encounter the color red, they think it stands for blood. And every mention of wood stands for the cross. They say Noah made an ark of gopher wood. And gophers, you know, go into the ground and come out. So that's the resurrection. <laughs> that's not Christ in a preaching. That's allegory. That's the result of a hyperactive imagination. Reading Christ into the text instead of seeing where the text stands in relation to Christ. How does this Old Testament story stand in relation to Christ? We are preaching this obscure Old Testament text because we want you to know the stories in the Bible and the story of the Bible. I want to teach you how to see the little stories of the Bible in light of the grand story of the Bible. I will not put Christ where he is not. But I will show you that this text reveals why Christ was necessary. This text seems far away from us. It is not. This text seems far away from Christ. It is not. Let me lay out my plan of attack. First, I want to set the stage for the story. Second, I want to let the story unfold on the stage. Third, I want to show you why you desperately needed to watch this story unfold on this stage. Set the, set the stage for the story. Let the story unfold on the stage. Then finally, show you why you desperately needed to watch this story unfold on this stage. Those of you that are non-Christians, you're going to want to hang on until I get here. Because there is a reason that you need this text. Christians, there are several reasons you must watch this unfold. I'll cover five of them during this last movement. We'll begin by setting the stage for the story. Israel's king is dead and beheaded on the battlefield. So are his three sons, including Jonathan. A young man, a foreigner saw the dead king on the battlefield. This was before the Philistines decapitated Saul. This young man was living in Israel, but wasn't an Israelite. He had his green card. And he saw this as an opportunity for political advantage. He snatched the crown and ran to David saying, I killed King Saul. Now you can be king. Here, the crown. As it turns out, this young man didn't kill King Saul, but he was an opportunist and thinks by saying this, he'll get into David's goodwill, ingratiate himself, curry favor. He assumes David is desperate to become king. He's attempting to turn Saul's death into his own advantage. David heard of Saul's death and he started ripping his clothes 
and mourning and loud wailing. I don't think the young man expected this response. I think he was expecting shouts of joy. David then had the young man killed for touching God's anointed. The king is without his head, which means the nation is without their head. Who is going to be the new king? King Saul has no more sons. They all died with him on the battlefield. Except one. Who may have been too young to fight alongside his daddy. Or who may have been a flower. And just too, just too fragile to be a man of war like the other men in his family. Israel consists of 12 tribes. One tribe sets up David as king. Eleven tribes set up Ishbosheth as king. And so begins the seven-year Israeli civil war. Joab and David, Joab led David's army, and then Abner led Ishbosheth's army. In the first battle, Abner killed Joab's little brother. Something Joab never forgot. The narrator summarizes this seven-year civil war this way. The house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. The house of David grew stronger and stronger. Saul was already dead and beheaded, of course, but his house was continuing through his son, Ishbosheth. Toward the end of the civil war, Abner, smart man, saw the inevitable and tried to switch sides. He actually brokered a united kingdom deal with David. David accepted, and Abner went to pack his bags and move into David's house. Before Abner could even settle in, Joab and his brother took Abner to an inner room and stabbed him in the stomach with a dagger. Abner died on the spot. Joab avenged the death of his little brother. Saul's house is now teetering. It's about to be blown over. It wasn't built on, on the rock. It was built on sand. This whole chapter, chapter 4, shows how the weaker and weaker house of Saul eventually crumbles and how the stronger and stronger house of David is expanded. So that is setting the stage for the story. Now... Let the story unfold on the stage. Chapter 4 picks up with the death of Abner. Verse 1. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed. His heart sank. He knows he has no ability to remain on the throne of these 11 tribes. Abner was the muscle and the brains. Ishbosheth was the empty suit, or better, the empty robe. Ishbosheth is shaken, and he's got good reason to be shaken. He effectively has no military leader. The text says his courage failed. Literally, in the Hebrew, that's his hands dropped. When my youngest used to get discouraged, his shoulders dropped. I'd always tell him, shoulders up, shoulders up, shoulders up. I'm not saying that to Ishbosheth. 
he has good reason to drop his shoulders. He's over there with his shoulders slumped because he knows he's a sitting duck. David will not kill him, but the piranhas will. They are circling and they smell blood. We leave Ishbosheth there with his slumped shoulders. And now the text introduces two of his captains. Verse 2. Now Saul's son, that's Ishbosheth, had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Bana, the name of the other, Rechab. Rechab and Bana. I'm going to call them R&B. R&B were experienced leaders in Saul's guerrilla band, which is now Ishbosheth's. These men were used to working with a tough guy like Abner, but he's dead now. And the text goes into curious detail about their family background. They were foreigners living among the 11 tribes and part of their army, but not true Israelites. They as well had their green cards. In fact, they became part of Saul's own tribe. They were in his house. The narrator goes into their background because he wants the reader to know the people in the house started turning on one another, killing one another. The house will fall from within. Rechab and Bana led a band of, band of rebels. They were natural-born killers, assassins, trained to kill from the youth. They were as type A as you could possibly be. They were men's men, Sparta men. They knew how to drop a lot of bodies in a short period of time. Your arrows will blot out the sun, then we shall fight in the shade type of men. Testosterone-filled barbarians. Completely opposite of squishy ishy. He has slumped shoulders, and they have wide shoulders. It's hard for men like this to follow men like that. They lose respect for him. He's not a fighting king. He didn't get that position by climbing the ranks. Abner put him in that position. He's a puppet king, not a military leader. Now let's review our characters in the plot so far. We've got slump-shouldered Ishbosheth, and now these two wide-shouldered natural-born killers. Then the narrator inserts this story that seems out of place. It's not, I'll reveal that later, but at first it seems out of place. It slipped in here and basically interrupts the narrative, disrupts the flow. You could scratch out verse 4 and the narrative would lose nothing. Another character is introduced, but why? Verse 4, Jonathan... Remember, Jonathan is dead. He died honorably in battle with his father. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Verse 4 goes back in time and lets us discover something that happened that we didn't know happened. When Saul and Jonathan died on the battlefield and had their heads cut off, 
someone came with the news and said, Saul and Jonathan are dead. Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth. At the time of receiving this news, he was five years old. His caretaker, his babysitter, his nanny scooped him up and began running. Where was she running? We don't know. She just panicked and, and took off. Now this lady is called a nurse. She's not his wet nurse. He's too old for that. She's his care nurse. Apparently, in her haste, she fell. While holding the five-year-old boy, she fell. And the fall must have been hard because when the boy hit the ground, he was severely injured. It was more than breaking a leg. It was breaking both legs and injuring the spinal cord. This five-year-old screamed out in pain, a blood-curdling scream. He couldn't move his legs anymore. The nurse broke down because she broke the child. How devastating. She intended to protect the boy. She loved the boy. She cared for the boy. She was basically his mom. But she broke the boy. He's permanently disabled. He'll never walk again. And this was in a day when there were no wheelchairs. You had to be carried by someone from place to place. If no one carried you, you remained by the roadside all day. He lost his legs and his dad all in the same day. What a tragedy. No good could come from this horrible accident. Now, all that happened seven years ago. The boy isn't five anymore. He's 12. Why wait this long to let us in on this event? Well, we need to remember that this is an ascension narrative. David is ascending to the throne. Any of Saul's sons are an obstacle. They block David's ascension to the throne. There are only two remaining male descendants of Saul who could block David. There are no other viable candidates existing. Ishbosheth is Saul's son, and Mephibosheth is Saul's grandson. These are the only two threats left. Why is the Mephibosheth story inserted here? To make it clear that after the death of Ishbosheth, there will be no fit heir from the house of Saul to be on the throne. Mephibosheth is the only grandson left that would have strong legal claims to the throne. Three of Saul's sons are dead on the battlefield. And so there's just Ishbosheth and this crippled child left. And he wears a diaper. He's not a contender for the throne. He poses no real political threat to David. By the way, haven't there been a lot of things dropped in our passage? Dropped shoulders, dropped bodies, and a dropped child. Now back to the story, verse 5. Now R&B set out, and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. The hottest time of the day made for perfect afternoon napping. Ishbosheth slumped his shoulders until the heat of the day, and then finally he dove into bed. He's taking a siesta 
an afternoon nap in a hot, arid climate with no AC, this is what you did. You rested during the hottest part of the day so you could work later. These two assassins, R and B, slipped past the gatekeeper under the ruse of pretending to purchase a supply of wheat. Apparently, the food storage for the army was held in Ishbosheth's mansion. R and B were granted entry in order to pick up the next day's rations for the men. They stealthily passed the food ration section and went down the hall to the king's room. They opened the door, and there on the bed is the sleeping king. He's alone and defenseless and snoring. R&B do what they do best. They kill quickly and quietly. They stick a, according to verse 6, they stick a, a dagger in his stomach. This is a cold-blooded assassination. And like ninjas in the night, they are gone without a sound. The only sound from that room is the sound of running blood pouring from Ishbosheth's body and soaking the bed around him. The narrator is quick, quick in his account. They came, he slept, they stabbed. And verse 7 reveals a, a nasty event. Before they left, they beheaded the king. This was not a crime of passion. This was not tempers flaring. This was premeditated murder. They had planned to kill him in this fashion and leave with his severed head. There was forethought, planning, and they knew where they were going after the assassination. Verse 7b. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. Now, this is an 80-mile trip. Maybe took two days. The whole way, they're holding this head with blood dripping from it. They leave Saul's house and they walk to David's house and they begin knocking. David opens the door and there they stand with the king's head. They grip it by the hair and hold it out to David. Decapitation is a theme in Samuel. Goliath was decapitated. Saul was decapitated. Now Ishbosheth. The head dripping with blood is proof of the monarch's death. They wanted to bring David proof. They said to David, He was out to kill you, but we saved the day. We killed him first. Now the kingdom will really be yours, David. They are attempting to curry favor with David, probably expecting a reward for their deeds. A reward for killing the rival king. We redeemed your life. Did you hear that? We redeemed your life. They are pretending to be David's redeemer. They even credit God for allowing them to commit this crime against the king. The Lord allowed us to avenge for you. This is their theological justification. 
They presume God's approval of their deed as though they acted on the Lord's express orders. They are crediting God with what was in fact vile and sinful. They have blood on their hands and theology on their lips thinking the latter will bleach the former. Verse 9. But David answered Rechab and Bana, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity? In other words, I don't need you to redeem my kingdom. God will do it. He's the one who redeemed my life. You're not my redeemer. Yahweh is. David repudiates their claims. You may use God's name for your actions, but God was nowhere in it. You pseudo-redeemers did nothing for me. God did it all. I don't need two men to protect me. My protection is from the Lord. I don't, I don't require your services. I have his. I don't need you to bring me the throne. God is bringing me the throne. David continues in verse 10. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news. I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. <laughs> I love this. David says, let me educate you boys. This is actually the second time this has happened to me. The first time a foreigner came to me with the crown of Saul after killing him. He was an opportunist just like the both of you. You know what happened to him? Um, no, no, sir. I had him killed. You don't touch the Lord's anointed. Verse 11. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I not require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? This isn't good. <laughs> this isn't good at all. Oh, no. These guys have badly miscalculated David. David calls Ishbosheth righteous. And you're like, hold up. I don't think I'd call him that. David calls Ishbosheth righteous because he was innocently killed, not because he was a righteous man. David barks, You evil men who killed an innocent man in cold blood. You don't think I will rid the land of you? David's charge against R&B is not touching God's anointed. That was his charge against the foreigner who said that he killed Saul. The charge here is murdering the innocent. Ishbosheth was not Yahweh's anointed, but he was murdered as an innocent man. Now, did you pick up on the comparison between Saul's death and his son Ishbosheth? Saul's death and his son Ishbosheth. Both were struck in the belly. Both were beheaded. News of their death was brought to David by a foreigner with a green card. Proof of death was provided to David. A crown in one case and a head in the other. David wasn't happy each time. 
And in each time, he killed the messenger. How will these assassins be killed? Verse 12. And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, and cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. These Sparta men were tough, but they were nothing compared to David's mighty men who easily dispatched of them. I don't want us to ignore what happened in the text. David dismembered these men. He mutilated them. Then he took the mutilated corpses and hung them out in the open, displayed them in public, This is the ultimate humiliation. Why dismember them? Perhaps indicating the parts of the body that had perpetrated the crime. He cut off the hands that killed Ishbosheth, and he cut off the feet that brought the dagger into the inner room. Their hands will never be used to kill again, their feet will never be used to run away from judgment again. Notice verse 12b. But they took the head of Ishbosheth, this is David, and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. The king's head and the king's general, Abner, are all in the same tomb. And they have more in common than the same tomb. Each one rejected God's second anointed king, David. Each one was killed by a set of brothers. Abner killed by Joab and his brother, Ishbosheth killed by R&B. Each was murdered in an inner room, and each died by a dagger to the stomach. We set the stage for the story. Then we let the story unfold on the stage. Now I want to show you why you desperately needed to watch this story unfold on this stage. Set the stage for the story. Let the story unfold on the stage. It was a gruesome one. Now show you why you desperately needed to watch this story unfold on this stage. This is where I'm hoping to answer the question, so what? Why did I need this exposition in my life? What does it reveal about God? How does it teach me to look at life through a biblical worldview? Why was this something Christians passed down from generation to generation to generation? How does this help me deal with tragedy? There are five reasons you desperately needed to watch this story unfold on this stage. And I just happened to bring them with me. Reason number one. You needed to see these faux redeemers hanging out in the open. To point you to the final redeemer hanging out in the open. You needed to see these two faux redeemers hanging out in the open to point you to the one final redeemer hanging out in the open. Remember, these two pretending to be David's redeemer, but they point you to David's redeemer. David displayed these two brothers' dead bodies out in the open for the public to see as a warning. But this is not the last time a body would be hung out in the open for the public to see. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross 
with the final redeemer hanging out in the open. I like that old hymn. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. I like it. But it's a little misleading. It wasn't on a mountain or a hill, depending on how you define it. It wasn't far away. But it was on a rugged cross. Nowhere in the Bible is it stated that Jesus died on a hill, much less a mountain. He was crucified in the place of the skull, a place right outside of Jerusalem. A person would be crucified in a marketplace or some busy intersection. Don't think a hill far away from people. Think a crowded shopping mall with lots of people. It was always set up and it stayed set up. In the Roman provinces, crucifixion was one of the customary ways to preserve public order. To frighten people away from rebelling against the government. And while I'm challenging your image you have of the crucifixion, let me go further and say that Jesus did not have fabric draped over his midsection. The movies have to do that and the paintings for propriety's sake. But Jesus was naked. Oh, the miracle. The one who has no clothes will clothe us with righteousness. Hibbert said some of these crosses would not be raised more than two feet off the ground. The height of the cross varied. The high cross seems to have been used when they wanted to make the victim visible. We know that Jesus had a high cross because they offered him a drink extended on a pole. They yelled, Jesus, if you're the son of God, save yourself and come down. Jesus' refusal to save himself is precisely what saves you. What does it mean to be saved? This is one of our Christianese words. But not everyone understands it. It's used in many different ways in English. In the bank setting, it has one meaning, to save money. In sports, it has all kinds of meaning, to save a goal. Or with the relief pitcher, he, he has a save. With computers, save your document. Jesus' work involved saving us from our sins. Only the death of Jesus could deal with our sin problem. Religion in and of itself cannot save you. Teenagers, your mother and father's faith can't save you. Knowing a few things about the Bible can't save you. Um, young 20s and 30s, being chill with the preacher can't save you. Praying a prayer mindlessly as a young kid can't save you. Jesus and Jesus alone can save you from your sin. You must have an alien righteousness. That means it comes from outside of yourself. We're Christians today not because Jesus came down, but because he stayed up. Now I want you to see. I want you to see these Two faux redeemers hanging in the open. They redeemed nothing. Now, see the final redeemer hanging in the open. 
He redeemed us. The faux redeemers have missing feet. The final redeemer has pierced feet. They are pierced in order to save those of us with clay feet and bring ultimate healing to those with lame feet. Reason number two. You needed this narrative to discover how to read it properly. You needed this narrative to discover how to read it properly. <laughs> you go into this text strictly thinking, I'm going to imitate David. Then you're going to kill some people and cut off their hands and feet. We are not given this account of David so we can imitate him. 2 Samuel 4 is descriptive, not prescriptive. You may want to write that down. It is descriptive, not prescriptive. Descriptive, not prescriptive. The narrator is describing what happened. He's not prescribing you to do this. You have to understand narrative. And this is why people mess up the book of Acts so badly. They don't comprehend this. You say, what is narrative? Narrative is a seminary word, a seminary way of saying story. It's a story. Narrative, stories, make up 60% of the Bible. This narrative is full of treachery, betrayal, violence, and murder. Why is it in the Bible? Not so that you can respond to your enemies like David did. That's not the purpose. Jesus showed us in the New Testament how to respond to our enemies. That was prescriptive, prescribing you to do it. This is descriptive. The narrator spends no time saying if David's mutilation of these two men was pleasing to God. I'm not sure. I don't think it is. I'm not sure. There is no divine command for anything like that in the Bible. Remember, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. Reason number three you desperately needed this story is that you need to realize that you can't advance the kingdom of God by human means. And I'm depending on the Lord to drive this home to your heart. You can't advance the kingdom of God by human means. These two assassins thought they could bring the kingdom of God by their actions. They said as much. We killed Saul, David, and now the kingdom is yours. We, by our human effort, brought God's kingdom. David said, God brings the kingdom. Results do not come by human effort. It is divine effort that brings it. Do you know who builds the church? God does. It cannot be built by human effort. Christian, you need this text because it says a lot about the church, who builds it and how it's built. I, I can't listen to the church growth gurus. They have it all mapped out with their strategic planning on how to grow the church. Church, I can't listen to that. I theologically have a big problem with that. 
I can't advance this work. Only God can. I will not do gimmicky stuff to get people in the doors of this church. Gimmicks and human effort will not advance God's kingdom. They can't convert a sinner. Only God can do that. They can't make you grow in the faith. Only God through his word does that. May the Lord build this church and may he deliver us from thinking we can build it by human effort. Reason number four why you need this text. So you don't blame God for everything done in his name. So you don't blame God for everything done in his name. Do you remember the story when R&B uh, credited God with allowing them to kill King Ishbosheth? It was about 15 minutes ago. I hope you did. <laughs> they credited God with what was in fact vile and sinful. They had blood on their hands and theology on their lips, thinking the latter will bleach the former. Non-Christians, hear this. God is not responsible for the evil actions that are sometimes done in his name. An example of this is the Crusades. A lot of people killed in the name of God. But God did not command them to do the killing. And when you have nut jobs that blow up abortion clinics and kill abortion doctors in the name of God, you need to know God isn't in that. And when you hear of religious leaders who prey on women and children, like one who just got out of prison two weeks ago, when you hear religious leaders saying things like, praying on women and children, saying things like, God wants us to do this. That's evil and vile and they will burn in hell for using the name of God for that evil. Reason number five. The fifth reason you need this text and the last one is this. You need to see your lame legs in God's running story. You need to see your lame legs in God's running story. Mephibosheth went through a heartbreaking tragedy. Was it not? I mean, he was dropped and paralyzed from a fall. Maybe he stayed awake at night asking God, why did you allow this to happen to me? Maybe he got angry because he couldn't reach something in a moment of weakness cursed. Maybe he cried night after night as he soiled himself. And went through the embarrassment of having other people change his diapers. What a tragedy. No good could come from this horrible accident. Or could it? When this child had his spinal cord injury, he had no idea that seven years later, some assassins named R&B would be searching out those in the line of the throne and killing them. See, they passed over Mephibosheth. 
because he's a cripple. His lame legs saved his life. And friend, you have no idea what God is doing with that cancer, that heartache, that tragedy. Could God be using that heartache to save you from something that would come later? What is it right now that you're facing that you don't understand? All you can do is hurt. And you can't see how anything good could come from this. I just want to remind you, beloved, your lame legs are in God's running story. He has a purpose. Until it is revealed to you, just trust him. Let's stand together. Father, you have our hearts, our legs, and our trust. Do with them as you please.